there's so many books on motivation and, and for work and for life. And here's our spiritual motivation. Here's our spiritual motivation. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that it was accessible. Suddenly I stood back and I was like stunned at the results because by thinking about it, I felt the effect. Many people, when they would write into the Lubavitcher Rebbe about fears or anxiety, a common response was to memorize chapter 41. So we recently discovered that we are in the top 10 Jewish podcasts, which is pretty cool. And that's thanks to all of you, our listeners. Yes, thank you for, for helping us build this community. It's been surreal watching yeah, how our community has grown. And every time we get feedback or we meet somebody in person that tells us how our interviews or how our conversations with each other has helped them in some way, just touches this deep place of gratefulness and just happiness that we're able to do that for ourselves because we've grown, grown through this podcast and for you listening. One thing I learned through this process is that words that come from the heart enter the heart. And we had a conversation with a really popular speaker um, and lecturer. And, and this person told us that the reason that he's able to penetrate, right, the reason he's able to connect to his audience is because he's kind of talking to himself. And I think that, Rivka, that's what you and I, in, in, in a way, are doing. I think we're talking about things that are important to us. And um, the people that we interview, I think, are also people who are talking to themselves in a way. Yeah. That's, I think, the best way to bring change, to impact and influence others, is to really recognize that we're all more alike than we are different. And I think that's what helped grow our community, because it's really a community of authentic people, specifically because you and I, Rivka, we're not looking to only interview, you know, the most famous person. And as a matter of fact, we had the opportunity recently to interview somebody who is internationally recognized and uh, we didn't do the interview. Because, <laughs> yes, it was quite the... Uh, <laughs> it was definitely a debate and a conversation and we didn't Between know. the two of us, yes. Yeah. As Jewish women, as, Jew as Jews, as someone who loves um, our land and our people, I, I just felt like he said some hurtful things in regard to um, Israel and the people fighting for our land. And at the same time, he has helped many people heal through ADHD and addiction. But ultimately, we really wanted to stick true to people that we're inspired by at yeah, the core. Right. And, you know, not to say that we wouldn't interview people who think differently than us. As a matter of fact, I think, I think that, that there's a lot of good in debate, healthy debate, but um, this specifically, and we both consulted, you know, our rabbis and, and we consulted people that care about us, people that we care about. And we came to the conclusion that it was probably not the right thing to do. And, um, you know, we both, obviously, Rifka, you and I have these discussions. We want to agree on who we bring on the platform, whether it's someone who is a, a world-renowned expert or somebody that we met next door who we feel has a message to share so you never know that. what you never know what you're going to get here. It could it, it's the only the our main criteria, the main thing is that this is someone who has a message that can inspire um, us to become better and live more purposefully. Yeah. Can I tell you something that I loved from uh, um, the experience that we had together coming to this conclusion, uh, not to interview someone really up there in the world, <laughs> is that for a short period or maybe throughout the whole process, we weren't exactly in line with each other's way of thinking. 
but we were able to listen to each other and give each other the space to come to uh, whatever conclusion we came to, which ended up being the same conclusion. But we really listened to each other. And I think that was a huge deal because we were always on the same page and we always agreed with each other and had the same way of thinking. And just there was just a little bit of a difference in the way we were thinking and our, from our own experiences. Rifka, I mean, I knew this about you always, is that you... You know, you're strong in your conviction. And if you believe that something's not right, you're very vocal about it and you're not afraid to say it. But in this in this situation, this is why you and I didn't initially agree on it. Um, I, I just, I was trying to comp- like compartmentalize. I was trying to, to, to convince, kind of almost convince myself that because this person has expertise in this one area, then all the stuff, sh- other stuff shouldn't matter. And maybe to some degree, there's there's logic to that but at the end of the day it was so hurtful the things that were said and well Rivka (laughs) Rivka, you felt strongly and then I started to see your point of view and understand it and yeah I mean it's and and, uh, but and yeah and I also heard you I'm really proud of the conclusion you came came to but I also it was also really hard because you had a connection to his teachings and uh, his philosophy and it helped you in your life so that wasn't an easy decision to come to I almost wish we could open this conversation to, to you, to our listeners, um, because it's it's a bigger conversation. You know, in this case, we were lucky that we had the clarity, the focus that we needed to make this decision. But in general, you know, if you're kind of you have this conflict and you're trying to choose between two things and both you can probably find a reason why each one makes sense. You know, how do you decide? And and. And that is why we, after this, this, this is how our episodes come to be. Right. We actually plan on doing an episode on clarity. So that's going to be coming up. But now you know where it comes from. Because yeah. when we both had the clarity and it was a team decision, both came to the same place, we see the power of clarity. Yeah. It, I, I needed a t- uh, sounding board, Rivka. I think that was important, just being able to say out loud, why you think it's a good idea, why you think it's not. And then also you have to come to terms with the fact that whenever, when you make the decision, whatever decision that is, that there's going to be no regrets. And, uh, you know, onward and, and outward and forward. I'd love to just read to you. I'm just going to choose one. Um, some of these reviews are beautiful and we really appreciate your reviews and keep them coming. I'm reading it from our Apple podcast. Uh, your latest episode with Rifki and Shaney was one of my favorites. You guys are developing and evolving in such a meaningful, professional, and inspiring way. Thanks for creating this for Jewish women like me. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Shana Goppen. And it's titled Wonderful Episode. I am glad I chose this wonderful one because listener. do you know how much feedback I've gotten about that episode, Trust the Timing of Your Life, with Rifki and Shaney? Yeah, yeah. That's why we feel it's so important to bring you people we know. It helps you. It helps us realize that we can all tap into this this potential that we have. Two days ago, I received. I'm just going to read her text. Somebody actually wrote to me, and I, I get this every so often. Um, different perspectives from this episode that we did on trust the timing of your life. She wrote, "I love the one you did with Rifki Kaplan and your aunt. I've sent it to many people. It helps younger girls to hear this. Many of them feel because you. I really did the episode for the, with the intention of making people in their 40s and 50s feel like you can do anything at any stage. But she said 
It helps for younger girls to hear this. Many of them feel this pressure to have life set before 30, and it's good for them to move forward with plans and work towards things, but they also don't need to feel that the cement will set and they are stuck forever in whatever they are doing. It teaches us all to be flexible and open to new opportunities. Wow. Beautiful. I really love that. Yeah. What a great message. So here we have another episode for you. I loved this conversation with Sarah Blau. Um, it definitely made me feel, her book is called Closer to You, and it definitely made me feel closer to my soul. It definitely made me feel that way. You know, how about you? Yeah. Everything we need is already inside of us. So this just helps bring us closer to our, our inner self, to our soul. Author of over 20 children's books and more than 150 articles, Sarah Blau lectures internationally to audiences of all ages and stages with a mission of making Hasidic teachings easy to digest using practical and everyday terms. She currently serves as an extracurricular director in Breath Rifka High School, Brooklyn, New York, and is also the publisher of the Embrace magazine and is the host of the Optimizing Mother podcast. Sarah's latest accomplishment to date is her newly released book, Close to You, published by the Meaningful Life Center, which aims to bring the Book of Tanya close to you. Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber, where we were both so inspired by each other's life experiences. It was then and there that we decided to create this platform because we believe in the power of the connection through sharing our experiences. Our goal is to bring you insights, wisdom from the people who inspire us, and interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders, and everyday heroes. We invite you to join us as we create positive change in mind, body, and soul from the inside out. So hello there. Sarah Blau is sitting with me in my recording studio slash kids playroom slash workout studio. And we are Zooming with Ida in her recording studio in Bell Harbor, Florida. We're so good. Shaitel's on Sunday morning. It's one of those days, you know, <laughs> you have to have something going on on a Sunday morning to have your shaitel on. This My babysitter comes, she's like, where are you going? <laughs> so early in the morning. Sorry, I'm trying to figure out if I know you. I feel like there's there always like seven degrees of separation where you can like find a few mutual friends or maybe right. oh, that sure. you went to. Okay. How's this? Your husband just donated to my other book. <sighs> weeks ago, I, I messaged him and I have another book coming out with Kahas and he's Pledge the donation. So beautiful. Okay, great. Right, there so there's, our, there's, so there's, our connection. there's a connection. It's it had to be something. Yeah, there's a connection through giving. Mm-hmm. And also I discovered that I have a connection because um my girls know Sarah from Base Rifka when she was teaching there. And I only spoke to my daughter Etty about because my other daughters are away, but Etty said I really like her and I think that speaks volumes to you as a teacher for a student to be able to say that years later. You don't um, look old enough to be Etty, your 20 some year old girl's teacher, but, but, um, but it, you look wonderful. The truth is my first year of teaching, I was three years older than the girls. So I'm 32 now. Okay. Okay. I, yeah. I feel I, like, I um, 2021, they were like 17. I taught them. And also we're friends on Facebook. I sometimes see you analyzing books. I don't know how that came to be, but we're friends on Facebook. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I see all your stuff. Oh, thank you. That's so nice. Um, but I read your the transcript. We, we're the lucky ones. We got to see the preview, but I read the whole transcript. It usually takes me a long time to read things, but this was very smooth sailing. That's pretty amazing. Wow. 
you sat and read the entire thing. Yes. Right. But so we're very excited to, yes. to break that down. But I guess before, um, we'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us who you are and how you got here. Okay. Yeah. So my name is Sarah Blau, and I'm a mother of four adorable boys. Thank God. Um, and I do have a lot of different hobbies and wear a lot of different hats. So I work in Beis Rafka. That's my main shlachas. I do the extracurricular programming. And I also do programming in the summer, do the day camp and different programs for alumni and magazine. Have you seen the Embrace magazine, Rifka? No, I haven't. I, sh- I should. We'll get you. Which magazine? It's called Embrace. We send out okay. to our alumni and to people in the community. But what I find is that my personal hobbies and my job actually end up really um, bleeding into each other in a beautiful way. Um, so if I have a hobby of writing Tanya, which we'll get into in a minute, it ends up helping me because the girls will use it and it'll resonate with them and they'll turn it into a workshop on your kids leave as part of extracurricular. And I find that happening all the time when I'm writing stories of Rebbitsons for a different book while end up using it for Chafeshvat. So I find that all the different hobbies that I have, painting, writing, speaking, et cetera, um, ends up really flowing and working off each other. That's so, so beautiful. Kind of merged. What is that quote Rosa. from from Rabbi Sachs? When yes, what I was, you, when I, it's so passion, funny. I was just thinking about yeah, that. When your passion meets with your mission, that's if when you want to you know find your mission. purpose in life. I feel like I've memorized it at this point. Oh, tell it's me. So what is the quote? If you want to find your purpose in life, think about the following. It's where what you want to do meets what needs to be done. It's that it's the merging of those two things. So it sounds like that's what happened with you. And that's really the the, the ultimate expression is when you find what you what you're good at or what you love, and you combine it with something that's needed. Which obviously in education, you know, right. to, to inspire students, that is something that can make a, a tremendous difference. So yeah, Rifka, I thought about that too. It's, it's, yeah. it's um, yeah, very very uh, very interesting. It's what we all want. We all want that our passions are what we're needed for and what our mission is. Right. So it's actually interesting because when I started writing. It came from a little bit of like a lonely place. My husband had a lot more working hours than me. I was home. My kids were sleeping so it's years ago and I was bored at night and lonely. My husband actually was the one who encouraged me. He said, right. That's when I started writing children's books. That's when I started working on my other book and eventually evolved into this Tanya book. But it was, it came from this lack place, this, <clears throat> I need to do something with my energy, you know, and that propelled me forward into writing. It's, it usually comes from this deep desire to, to fill something, you know, it can be like maybe a, a small void or it's like this feeling like I, I need to be doing more. Um, I feel like that's pretty consistent. Something that we've seen yeah. quite a bit. A struggle. I, I sure I, I can. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But specifically with Tanya, I kind of had this feeling like Tanya is about making Tyra love of God, fury of God close to you. And I felt like for many people, it's not close. It's long. It's in Hebrew. Who has the time? So specifically with the Tanya book, my goal was to make close to you, close to you. And that's the title of your book. Right. Because, you know, there's so many books on motivation and and for work and for life. And here's our spiritual motivation. Here's our spiritual motivation. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that it was accessible, that you could pick it up and read it like spiritual motivation Um, to do what God wants. And I believe that's what the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Close. So now I understand why you, you uh, titled the book that called close to you. It's a great title. And I think you're right. I think you're right that um, Tanya 
at least to many people, um, and to me at a certain point felt very esoteric, right? It's like, um, how is this supposed to change my life? And, um, and even Tanya books that were translated into English with commentary, those are great, but at the same time, it can, like you said, it can feel like, you know, overwhelming. Like, how do I, how do I bring this close? And I find that lately there's a lot of really popular books that come with short snippets of insights because that's very kind of absorbable. Like I can look at a page a day, like that's doable even for a busy person. So can you tell me about like what, like what led you to write the book specifically in this way? Was it because you knew that this was a way to make it easier for people? So I know when I read this, I have to actually meditate on each page. (laughs) And you did do what Edith said for a page has a deep thought that we can meditate on. Right. With the Tanya bit at the end. Yes. Like that little one liner, the takeaway. Yes. So we're actually going to do one of them today, which I'm very excited about. But can you give us some insight into the ways you have implemented the knowledge through writing your book and with the goal of your your readers and you being able to integrate it into your life. Has has that happened for you at all? And if so, can you give us some examples, some tangible examples? Yes, absolutely. So as I was writing it, a lot of the information I actually already knew. I went to school. I had learned Tanya. I had taught it previously. Um, it was information that I knew but not necessarily integrated, not necessarily applied. I think that's actually a big weakness for me. You know, I like to know information, but one plus one doesn't always get to equal two. Like I don't always get it to sink in. And the process of writing really helped me to integrate it because for the very nature of it, I was actually thinking of the content. I had to figure out how I was going to write it, how I was going to introduce it, you know, what would be the hook and what would be the content and what would be the takeaway And suddenly I stood back and I was like stunned at the results because by thinking about it, I felt the effect. Many people, when they would write into the Lubavitcher Rebbe about fears or anxiety, a common response was to memorize chapter 41. And when I started writing it and imagining it, and for example, sitting in a place in nature, um, actually, I once led a Tanya retreat with women and we sat on the beach and we, we thought about how God fills the world and he surrounds all world. You get yourself to feel God's presence. I felt myself emotionally more centered. I felt myself less anxious. I felt myself calmer. So in terms of the process and how it, it worked on me, I didn't even plan it. I thought I was just writing a book, but by thinking of it, it taught me that that's really what Tanya is meant to be. We're meant to be thinking. It's a muscle. We're meant to be working it, you know. I see weights here, Rifka. <laughs> I don't get strong by looking at weights. Right. I get strong by working out, and this is working our spiritual muscles. Using, I mean, our brain, but but getting used to thinking these kind of thoughts will impact us spiritually and emotionally, in a, in a godly way. When you shared that the Rebbe says to start the forty-first chapter, there's a book that came out, a little book that it, it's called Healthy in Mind, Body, Spirit, and it's the Rebbe's answers to people's questions on anything in mental health or physical health. But I saw that answer there to read that parak. I had actually opened it up and read it and I started to read that chapter, but I didn't actually go to a little um, lake and meditate on it, but that's a nice idea. <laughs> right. But the truth is you can go in your mind. Yeah. That's what the amazing thing about meditation is you can imagine yourself in a place that will calm you and, and your mind will take you there. It's about meditation. I wanted to read you the um, Definition from the dictionary. So the dictionary defines it as to think deeply or focus one's mind for a period of time 
for religious or spiritual purposes or as a method of relaxation. And I really think it's not far off because in Hasidus, there is this concept of hisbaininus, right? Where we call contemplation or meditation, where we're focusing deeply. We're thinking about these ideas. And I think that, you know, we don't use the word meditation, but we're kind of meditating all day anyway. You know, sometimes there's practical things we think about, and sometimes we're meditating on having a self-pity party. Or someone offends us. We like regurgitate in our mind what happened, you know, as if like, like our tongue is going to a sore spot. We're meditating. And what Tanya wants us to do is actually guide our meditation. We are we leading our mind? Our mind is the most powerful tool that we have. And how are we actively meditating? And that's really what was my dream was, you know, wake up in the morning, read a Tanya meditation and bring that into your day because you're going to have the other meditations. That's what our brains do. They, and today with neuroscience and, and neuroplasticity, everyone talks about making new neural pathways. So I'd love to see some godly neural pathways where we are making new paths of thinking godly thoughts. You know, what's really interesting about what you just said, it reminds me of a class I was just listening to this morning that Rabbi Shays Taub had given. And he said this quote, don't tell God how big your spiritual dysfunctions are. Tell your spiritual dysfunctions how big God is. I wow. saw that. I loved it. I think yes, it's so- because he was actually sharing that the Alter Rebbe says when we feel like we've done something wrong, not to delve into what we've done wrong. That's not what we should be like delving into the new way of looking things. He actually says it's the holistic way to look at things. The new (laughs) holistic way is to meditate on the greatness of Hashem. So I just find this similar. You're saying like often we're meditating during the day about what someone's done wrong to us or while maybe having guilt feelings or shame feelings about what we've done wrong. But what you're saying is, and what he was saying is, is that what we should really be doing is connecting, finding a way to connect to Hashem. And then we'll find that whether we have some dysfunctions or whether we're upset about something specific, like those specific things will start to correct themselves because we're connecting to God. Right. We're not fighting the old feeling. We're creating new feelings. Right. Peace, of calm, of love of God. You know, I also think you might find it interesting. Rabbits and Rifka used to meditate for 20 minutes every morning. She was meditating. And, you know, I remember reading that and thinking like, this is for women too. Women today, we, we need that spiritual boost. We need to be meditating and thinking about Hashem. Our, our souls need it. I just feel like we need we should make a distinction here because meditation, a conventional way of understanding it is to sit in complete silence and with nature. And so, and that is a form of meditation. I think that this, what we're talking about here, it's not just being still, it's it's kind of a guided meditation. We're guiding our, our minds into this direction based on some uh, principle. So here, principle. Absolutely. I think that's a big I myself don't really, I'm not clear Eastern, on the right. yeah. Eastern meditation and Hasidic meditation. Eastern meditation is kind of emptying your mind of thoughts. And the Hasidic meditation that we're talking about here is filling your mind, directing right. your mind exactly. in a calm, peaceful way. So we can call it active, active meditation. I'm so glad we're having this discussion because I've always like turned away from meditation. It just seems a bit too much for me. I'm like a fast paced person and I'm like, oh, meditation, let's just forget that. But this, the way you're defining it and the way either you just brought it up makes it more tangible and doable. It's not like some lofty thing that I can't access. I, I felt, yeah. I feel the same way. Like, and I know from research that it's really good for your mental health, you know, to be able to just be still with your thoughts. But I, I feel like it's really hard for people to do in, in this fast-paced world. Yeah. So Rivka, 
yeah, to what you said, um, this guided meditation is more tangible, doable way to do things. Yeah, which which we're going to get into now. But Ida, before we do, we were reading some of the things that Sarah does, mm-hmm. and you wanted to know about one meditation in which you shared an example, which I loved, which we loved on hypnobirthing. And could you tell us how this concept that you know these concepts that you share relate to hypnobirthing, and um, and also whether it applies to other areas of your life? Okay. So first of all, um, I'm happy you're bringing this question up because I think it really ties to what you're both saying where you didn't think you were the type, you know, I didn't think I was the type either to meditate. You know, it doesn't, it's, maybe it sounds like it's only for super spiritual people or yogis, because I, as you see, I do weights. I don't do yoga. Right. Right. So. <laughs> right. But the hypnotherapy is a muscle because it opened my eyes to, Hey, there's a lot of regular people who are not the spiritual type and look what they're doing. And it's working. So I got um, introduced to hypnobirthing between my older two kids and my younger two kids. And I did have some birth trauma. I had a stillborn before my first two kids. Wow. And I did have a lot of fear tied up to birth and hypnobirthing really helped me release that. And part of it was as simple as listening to the recording where that lady's voice says, I have no fear at all. Right. So there's one thing to tell yourself, you know, have faith in Hashem and you'll be relaxed and it'll be okay. And there was another thing of what it did to my mind to sit and listen and listen and listen and actually relax myself and go into that faith and go into that trust. And I saw a huge difference between my second two and my first two. And I said, wait, like, like it suddenly showed me, oh, we're onto something because you don't need to be a spiritual person. If it works, it works. So if listening and working my muscles and calming them before will help me in real time, these meditations work the same way. We can get people who don't think of themselves as spiritual to think of, you know, I'll give you an example. But I do think you can feel you can be spiritual and not be into meditations. I don't know if it's. it's oh, sure. It's not mutually yeah. exclusive. It just taught me that it could apply to anyone. We put ourselves right. into a box. Right. And the, the whole point of. Of, of the altar is that it's close to you. It's so doable for me and you and you and you, no matter your affiliation, no matter your personality, like Tanya is for you. Thinking about these thoughts is for you. One of the easiest meditations that I thought of like later when the altar discusses different forms of loving God. And the altar says, well, there's a love of God called Avas Elam, love of the world. We could do, you know, we can think about it right now. Think of something that you love or someone that you love and feel that love in your heart. It could be food. It could be a person. It could be music. It could be art. Feel it. Feel that love. The altar says, now transfer that love that you feel in that heart, whether it's a child or someone very close to you, to God, who's the source of that thing that you love. So if I could feel love of my child in my heart right now and then transfer that to Hashem, I could feel that love of Hashem. And it was so practical. It was so doable. It was like, I could do this. Yeah. It, it, I was thinking of my children. <laughs> right? Like, um, I, I love my children. So of course I could love Hashem. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring up children because actually the first meditations I've ever done is, was a few months ago. I did Chase Taub's parenting course. Mm-hmm. And he has meditations for each class. And I was, and it's like a 10 minute meditation on each class. And I was like, wow, why haven't I ever done, I ever done <laughs> meditations before? They really helped me 
integrate what he was sharing in the class into my life in some way. Right. Yeah. Right. And and I think it's the same. You asked if it's like in other areas of life. It, I think that's the way it is in life. You put effort into it. You work on it. You will be seeing the results. It's like it's like hypnobirthing. It's like exercise. And it's like it's like anything else where when we work our mind, you know, when you work it, it works. Right. Just just to clarify, hypnobirthing. I feel like you'd probably define it better. But could you just share how hypnobirthing works? Like what what is what's that concept? For me, it was practicing being calm and the breathing for a few months leading up to the birth. And, you know, I did it with my teacher and she was great. And it, it got myself so ready that, you know, I, I knew my, my mind knew how to get into that state of calm. I was like, Oh, that, right. you know, I put on a good name. I paint. My mind was already in a different place. It was practiced. I feel like and I need I to do it before I get like, before I get a shot. Cause I'm still terrified of needles. <laughs> I need like a it could probably help. It could probably help. You know, I mean, tell I know you when we should do it. We should do it now before we're going to give a lecture in Florida. Mm-hmm. And we were just discussing how nervous we are. And we should do that. <laughs> no birthing. You're right. Well, you You're know right. what? We should do one of your meditations. That's what we should do. That's a yeah. The hypnobirthing is a muscle. The nimshell yeah. really right. is. Yeah. I get nervous before I speak all the time. And I have to use these tools on myself of you know, calming myself down, asking Hashem for help on my way here. That's what I'm like, Hashem, please help. The right words come out of my mouth. Hashem's helping you. (laughs) It seems like Um, such a no brainer because if, you know, even it'll, it'll promote an easier birth. It'll promote a more relaxed environment. If you're speaking for, you know, a crowd, even if you're getting a shot, it will actually hurt less. If you're just more, you know, kind of going with the flow, going with the process and not trying to resist it. So there's like so many applications here. Um, we're very excited today because uh, we chose one of the med- meditations that we're going to do together with Sarah. And I actually chose your meditation, Shameless Struggle. And I'll tell you why, because I was reading it and, you know, somehow whatever you read applies to what you're doing in your life when you're, when you're conscious of it. <laughs> um, for those of you who don't, who it's your first time tuning in, I'm a health coach. And one of my clients was telling me that she feels like this past week, she refined some of her desires. And she just, she said to me, but my desires haven't gone away, but I feel like I've refined them. And she asked me, it's been many years for you. Have your desires gone away? <laughs> and I, I, I actually have thought about it before, but when she said it to me, I was wondering, because I had read your shameless struggle, I was wondering, have my desires faded because... I've worked on myself and because I've put up boundaries and because I see the results of working on them, or is it still really there, but the boundaries are kind of hiding that it's still really there. Okay. So I actually relate to that question because I myself am off sugar for five and a half years. And I don't know if we have control over how much the desire will ever go away. I think overall, there's less of a fight. Um, I think sometimes when my kids eat pizza, I still want it. Yeah. So same. (laughs) I really, I really appreciate that you chose this one because I think this really sums the whole Tanya up. Like it's all here because the Tyra makes this bold statement that it's close to you to serve God in your heart and your mind to do it. And then me and you are like, uh, do you know me? Do you know what I struggle with? Do you know what my challenges are? The altar of it confidently says it's still close to you. And he lets us know that there's a difference between you know, our desires 
which are human, which are normal, which are, you know, there's no big confessional here. Oh my gosh. You know, I have this desire. You're human. God gave that to you. The, the desires are human. And yet every day you can make the active choice not to give into them. And so struggle is just, you know, it's like, hi, I'm human. So I'm going to struggle. And some things are going to get easier for me, like with the sugar and some things are not. There are certain parts of my personality that are always going to be hard for me. Yeah. And I'm committed to fighting it, you know? And I think what's also very interesting where the altar are like differentiate between certain things that we're never going to allow, like a negative manifestation of, let's say, a bad character right. trait versus channeling that energy. You know, someone who might be angry might also be very passionate and channel their passion into positive things. And, and that's why there's certain things that are like, you know, untouchables and certain things that we're going to try to work with it. You know, I'm going to get to know myself. I feel like Tanya's like our Hasidic psychology book. Like here's your soul's psyche. Like this is what you need to know about yourself in this world. Yeah. And, and what's comforting what we're going to do now about this meditation is that there's no shame in sharing that we have that struggle. God actually takes pleasure in knowing that we have the struggle, but we're working at the struggle. Before we start the meditation, there's one thing that I see all the time. There's this resistance to the way that things are. And I think Tanya is such a great basis in the ther- in a therapy session because what what it says and that's really what a bainani is right in the Tanya is actually the fact that you are resisting your reality is part of your process. This is like how things are. The struggle is life. The the you know as, as much you know as long as you're trying to get rid of this right. Oh, this is bad. I need to get rid of this. You're not understanding that this is part of, it's part of how things are supposed to be. Rivka, I'm so happy that you chose this one. And Sarah, I'm really excited to, to do this you know, with you. Um, I think just to kind of even meditate on the fact that struggle is part of our process and it's okay to feel these conflicting feelings and recognize that it's actually part of our process. So I'm getting myself into this meditative mindset yeah. before we start so that I can you know, benefit from it. Right. Okay. Um, but you know what you had mentioned, Benini, I was wondering if we should define that before we get into the meditation, because, well, that is the whole, the whole oh, goal yeah. of Tanya is to, is to be a Benini. And if you can define that for our listeners. The Benini is like the average guy, me and you, which means that we're making an active decision not to act out in any forbidden, you know, thought, speech, and action. And at the same time, we're becoming right-sized in our own mind. We're not trying to be the tzaddik, the righteous person. We're not trying to um, eradicate all desire for something wrong or even just for, for something very physical because we're human. We can't, you know, we have to know our place and our place is our area of control is what are we actively choosing to think now? What are we actually choosing to say now, what are we actually choosing to do now rather than what we want, which is something God gives us. God gives us a personality. God gives us our desires. And um, it's so helpful and healing to know where my area of control is and where it's actually coming from a negative place to feel bad about it. That's really what it says here. It's like the shame is 
going to destroy you. It, it, you think it's coming from a good place. It's not. It wants to bring you down so that you're not serving God properly. And our goal is to be free of that shame so that we could serve God happily, joyfully, realistically, realistically, knowing what I could change and what I can change. Just for the listeners, I did record um, five of the meditations that the Meaningful Life Center is releasing, I think, once a week, but we're going to do one live now. Um, and you're going to have like this kind of meditation to go along with each page? So that's what I meant. I did five already. Mm-hmm. Okay. If if there's a need or if there's a want, maybe we'll do all of them. Right. But for now, for I started now with five and then, you know, the, my five right. favorite ones. Yeah. Let's Was this, this one of them? 27, yeah. No, the one that we're doing now. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's one of your favorite ones? Yes. Good. I'm so glad I picked one of your favorites. Absolutely. (laughs) It's one of them that I already recorded. Um, Okay. So dear listeners, I don't know where you are when you're listening to this. You might be cooking in the kitchen for a Shabbos dinner. You might be walking, but try to see if you could relax your mind and open up and really, really think the following as I read it. Should we close our eyes? Sorry. Do we close our eyes or? Relax. Unless we're driving. Eyes if you prefer. And really bring the imagery as vivid as you can. Shameless struggle. Don't let struggle demoralize you. Do you find that there were certain things that challenged you many years ago and feel despondent that five, 10, or 20 years later, you are still up against the same internal struggle. Does it bother you that while you consider yourself a moral and spiritual person, you still find yourself at home or work, tempted by desires to speak or act in a manner that you are ashamed of? You are not alone. The nature of the human condition is to struggle. Instead of feeling downhearted that yet again you are tempted by your senses, You can feel joy, for only when you battle temptation can you fulfill an actual mitzvah in the Torah. You shall not follow after your heart and after your eyes, by which you go astray. These words weren't commanded to saints, but to the Benini, the term coined to describe your average human. For reasons known only to God, he experiences tremendous pleasure every time you squelch a negative desire. There is no shame and struggle. If anything, shame is rooted in a person's ego, where he expects himself to be exempt from the struggle experienced by the rest of humanity. And while this may come as a surprise to some, our very purpose in this world is to wrestle with our compulsions and impulses, trying time and again to subdue and tame our inner demons. Here's the incredible part. Every time you don't give in to a negative desire, you weaken its power over you. And that automatically weakens the power of negative energy in the world so that each time you emerge victorious, you lessen the darkness in this world and make the struggle a bit easier for you and everyone else. This is not something a tzaddik can do, for he does not battle with klipa. Only a benini, by rejecting the klipa, can weaken it for himself and for the world around him. Tanya bit. Internal conflict is not a letdown, but a reason to rejoice. Hmm, I love that. I feel like we need five seconds. Yeah. 
yeah, to process, to think. Yeah, that's... What I love so much about it is I find that the, the Tanya literally turns it on its head. Not only is it not a source of shame, but guess what? It's a source of joy and pride. Like, are you so proud of yourself that you have the desire to do X, Y, and Z and you don't? And even if a hundred times you didn't act out on it, you know how much effort it takes to not do something? Nobody knows. God knows. And that's a source of joy. I was thinking as what I was sharing earlier that not to delve in, that we shouldn't necessarily delve in our wrongdoings, but we should connect to Hashem. So somehow when we have this struggle, that leads us to connect to Hashem. Yes. In the struggle itself. Also talking to him, asking him for help. And also when you embrace it, when you embrace the struggle, it's easier to resist the temptation. And that's important to to remember. Like sometimes um, we're, we're trying to, get rid of the struggle. And that makes us more likely to give into the temptation. So it's so liberating to know that my struggle is good. Like suddenly I feel more free because I don't have to get rid of it. It's just part of life. There's not a single person who doesn't struggle. And if they say they don't, it could be there's some form of numbing um, going on. But um, Sarah, can you describe the two for- these two forces inside of us? And I don't know that we maybe we already did, but but how can we tangibly be at peace with these forces and maybe give some examples from your life or lives of people that you know um, on this concept? So you asked very interesting, how can we tangibly be at peace with these forces? I think that the answer um, is like what we touched upon, not being like, oh my gosh, I have a challenge. That's where the peace comes from. We're not wasting energy being upset that we have the struggle. We're putting our energy where it needs to be. How could I overcome it? How could I put guidelines in place to help me overcome it? Because a lot of times what we need is to get to know ourselves and our, you know, what's going to trip us up or triggers um, in modern term- terminology and not just avoiding it, but how could I strengthen myself so that I can become as untriggerable as possible? You know, we get to know our, our weak points. The way the altar defines the struggle is we have a godly soul and we have an animal soul. Um, and the godly soul wants one thing. It wants unity with God. It wants us to think godly thoughts and do, you know, Torah mitzvahs and, and, and do a mitzvah and think a mitzvah. And that's what the godly soul wants. And the animal soul is interesting because it's not always bad. It's just, it's selfish. It's animalistic. And when we understand it, um, and I think we touched upon that before we can, we can start listening to what the animal soul wants and say, Hey, there are certain desires, the animal souls that are completely forbidden. You know, if Torah says you can't do something, which means that natural human desire might be to do it, that there's nothing to work with. I can't do it. But then trying to get that energy of the animal soul and bringing it along, like showing it that God is good and living a godly life is a good life. And it's even better for it. Like we were saying before, you know, we'll be calmer and do emotionally better if we believe and think in God. Like when we can get that energy of the animal soul, the godly soul can fly. So I think that the peace that we get is from accepting that we have these two forces inside of us. We don't need to beat ourselves up over it. Um, and, you know, being forward focused, strategy focused, you know, the altar gives example of war. We're strategy focused. How, what's my, what's my strategy? 
you know, we're not going to just wake up and go into it. You don't just go to war and be like, oh, there's an enemy. It's, I have a challenge. So what's my, what's my game plan? And I'm going to ask, you know, for help other people that go through similar challenges, what their game plan is, what works for them. You know, you know, it's interesting that you, you're saying it's, it's just amazing how Tanya relates so much to psychology of today. This is actually an old book that I'm reading right under there. It's called The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck, M. Scott Peck. Anyway, the first line oh, sure, in yeah. the book is, yeah, the first line in the book is life is difficult. And he said, the way to overcome anything is to accept that life is difficult. That's the first line in the book. Life is difficult. And it's like this. You're saying the first step is to know we have an animalistic soul and we have a godly soul. And we have that animalistic soul. And to accept that, okay, what is our, what is our goal next? What, what are we going to do about it? So the first step is to know, Rivka, like you said. Yeah. And, and Sarah, in the beginning of our conversation, um, I, I connected right away to something that you said because I can personally like relate to this, is that you know it's so easy to know. And I don't know if this is exactly how you it, but this is kind of how I understood it is that it's so easy to intellectualize something. Like I understand this conceptually, um, but then why isn't it working practically? Because then there's a next step. Yes. The knowing is important, but then there's like the practical thing of doing what yeah. we know. Right. That's why I tried to put like practical examples in the Tanya and like bring it down like yeah. examples so that it integrates into our life and that it's, and that it's real. How would you define an empowered woman today? I define an empowered woman, at least for myself, when what I'm doing is in line with what my soul wants. That's power. And my soul's expression is obviously in the obvious, you know, um, whether it's making the time to pray to Davin in the morning and, and, and Shabbos, but even in the less obvious, I love to paint. My soul needs to express itself in that way. It, it helps me feel closer to Hashem. It helps me feel me. I feel it's part of my mission, right? And for me, empowerment is finding what are the gifts that Hashem gave you, which are hints to what he wants from you. So that's the Tyra and, and, and anything that he gave you. He's nudging you in a direction. He wants you to make his world better. So I find that when girls are feeling not empowered or children, they haven't found something that's in line with their soul enough. They're not, they're not at peace with, with who they are. And we need to help them. We need to give them opportunities to express their soul in, in all different ways. Rivka, that reminds me of what Edith Eager said. Um, the opposite of depression is expression. Because that finding that part of you, that soul connection to the world is essential. It's easier said than done, but... Certainly. Right. You know, right. But yeah. even a, a mitzvah that you love, finding that connection to it, you, you know, whether it's the kosher food or even, you know, dressing modestly, but putting a, you know, doing it in a way that feels so soulful. It's very empowering because it, you, then you can shut out the noise from the outside world. You know, you're doing the right thing. <laughs> the neighbors are working next door. <laughs> And I said, also, even now, as I release that meditation, I have a lot of fear because maybe it's not so, it's not so traditional. It's not what other people have done. It's different. And that's what I mean by empowerment. But if I know that this is what has helped me yeah. get closer to Hashem, right? Close to you. And there are people that it's going to resonate with. There might be people that it won't. Right. It's true. 
But the empowerment comes from, I know I'm doing what I believe Hashem wants from me. And when I was younger, I think I had a lot more fear and it inhibited me. You know, I remember once writing a poem about a sunset and a lot of girls were like, like people couldn't relate to it, but I had this, like, th- that's what came out of me. Like, that's what I related to. So I've learned that if, if Hashem has given me a certain personality or understanding of the Tanya or this desire to write and bring it out into the world in a certain way, it won't resonate with everyone, but it's, it's what my Nishama is contributing. It's what my soul is contributing. And it's, that's my soul work. Exactly what you were doing with this podcast. Now. Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> Edie, you had touched upon having a mashmi, and that is a way to connect to, a way for us to connect to our souls. So if you really think about it, there are a lot of people we look up to today, um, and they could be people that are not here with us anymore. It is nice to have someone physically here that we can turn to, that we relate to, that we see have grown in certain areas, um, that we can uh, can actually take their advice and apply it into our lives because we are talking about integration today. Do you have a mentor, a mashpia that you look up to that has helped you in some way? Yeah, in many ways. Absolutely. And I'm so, so grateful for her. And believe it or not, um, she's my mashpia since I've been in seminary. Wow. I was in seminary in Svas for two years. And my mashpia was somebody that took my question seriously. I remember going on these long walks and, you know, that was the only care in the world that I had, my deep questions. <laughs> but I think that's what seminary is for. And she was so patient and I found her to be such a role model of the values that I wanted, but so down to earth. She had a family, a shlachos, was patient. And I think that, you know, in terms of education, it's important to remember that. You know, I asked her to be my mishpia and she's my mishpia till today. Then through dating and marriage and raising my children, you know, I, I had a close enough connection with her from then till today. And I think it's so important for educators to realize that, that taking the time and having the patience and making a girl feel like her questions are serious and, and they matter um, really, really is impactful. And I had many teachers who, you know, were amazing and, and had patience and, and, you know, you know, but she really stood out and I really connected to her and I really looked up to her. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I think it's brilliant the way the Rebbe set this idea of having a mentor, a spiritual mentor. I mean, today we know everyone has a life coach or, um, you know, another person in their life. And, and I'm, I'm just so grateful for it because so many of the decisions that I made today and so many, the, you know, the whole direction my life took is thanks to her advice. So I'm grateful for that. You're, you're very blessed to have the same must be our mentor all these years in seminary. That's, that's a real gift yeah. and a blessing. Yeah. And she just knows me inside out and knows, you know, when my, when to maybe push me a little bit, when to not take myself so seriously. Um, you know, I do discuss with her a lot, whether I should take something on or not, just that balance of family first versus, you know, what I want to do in the outside world and that all that balance, I, I really get a lot of wisdom and guidance from her. Do you, do you speak to her regularly, like once a week or? It's not regularly once right. a week. It's as it's needed. When you, as it's, needed. A, it's as needed. And, you know, it's a lot of fun with the different time zones and all that, but we make it work. And I'm, I'm, I feel blessed. that. Yeah. It, it's amazing the power of people and, and what they can have on us because you met this woman in seminary and sometimes it, it can be the other way, a, a negative experience. This is really 
an amazing story in the power of words and what what influence a person can have in our lives, even just with one sentence. My husband and I met up with good friends of ours visiting from Australia, Rabbi Levy and Hani Wolf, who are the Rabbi and Rambertson of Central Synagogue in Sydney, Australia. And they had a member of their community who went through the Holocaust. His name is Alex Lowy. He's passed away now. And he was having a birthday party for his 90th birthday. And the one thing that he shared was this one story. Now, he has been through so many trials and tribulations, having gone through the Holocaust. But the story that he shared that had the greatest impact on him was when he was a little boy in school. He was about 10 or 11 years old. And um, there was a rabbi that was coming to visit the, the classroom and to hear a sentence from each student. And they went around to each student and then they got to him. He was the last one. And he heard the teacher whisper to the rabbi. He actually said it in Yiddish. His Hebrew name was Shmuel Avram. He said, with Shmuel Avram, it doesn't matter. There's nothing much that's going to come of him. It doesn't matter what you ask. You can just ask anything. And he overheard these words and he felt it affected him till today how his teacher felt that he, nothing was going to become of him. And how at his 90th birthday, this is the story that he shared. And it's just amazing the power that you can have as a teacher. And Sarah, you you were once a teacher. Um, you taught in school. And uh, well, my daughter's had great experiences with you. So we know you're a good teacher, but the power that you've had as a teacher, now you're an educator. And we are all educators. We are all teachers in our own way. We are all influencers as mothers, as wives, as mm-hmm. friends. Whatever we do in our lives, we are a leader in some way and the power of words and what that can do to a little boy, a little girl, or to, or to us as adults too. And so it's. It, I also think in the positive way, you finding Mashbia who had an effect on you, her positive words led you to become who you are today too. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's really on beautiful. That, yeah. On that note, I wanted to know if you can share, because you are a teacher, I know you were affected by your, your mentor, your Mashbia, but as a child, is there anything that you remember having an impact on you or any lesson that you learned from your teachers or you being a teacher in the classroom? Um, so like I mentioned earlier, I think a lot of teachers impacted me. I wanted to know as much as they knew. I think that when a teacher walked in passionate about her subject, whether it's about Chumash or hysteria, it definitely gave me that thirst. There are a few teachers that stick out in my mind, and it always had to do with beyond the classroom. You know, the teacher that asked me how I was doing, that wanted to know why I was falling asleep in class, that cared to set me up because she's, you know, she saw I was a little bored in class. So she cared to set me up with a girl after school to learn. These were things that really impacted me. And here's also a little short anecdote. When I was in fourth grade, it was one of my teachers who noticed that I was doodling on a paper. And she said, oh, I see you like art. And she asked me if I wanted to decorate these um, calendar in the classroom. I'll never forget it. I worked so hard. I made these little snowmen out of construction paper and with little branches and a hat. And, and it was the first time that I recognized that I had this artistic bent. Wow. Oh. And here you are painting today. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I think it's, you know, it's both. It's the teacher in the classroom that taught me how to learn, you know, the skills. I think of my high school teachers. I think of my elementary teachers. What I know is, is because of what they taught me. But I also know that it's important to care about the person and not just the mark and noticing what are your students' individual strengths, likes, you know, how to bring that out in them. That is so valuable. It's true. It's it's love that we need. 
That's what you know, I, I, it reminds me of another story. I don't know if we're going to share it, yeah. but I, I feel like I'm going to tell you because yeah. we're for bringing okay. a Hatsala member, a local Hatsala member that when he grew up, he struggled in class. It was in another country. And one of his teachers told his mother, like, he's basically a good for nothing. Like he, he's not going to be anything. Right. He grew up and moved here and he's in Hatsala and he's a very active member of Hatsala. Um, and Years later, that other teacher eventually moved here also. And one time he was called because somebody was having a heart attack and it was his teacher. And as he was sitting and working on him, the guy was barely conscious. He said, and I thought you would amount to nothing. Wow. It's amazing how when you're told something negative as a child, how either it can like hold you back or you can take it and be like, you know what? I am good. This is not me. I'm going to show you. <laughs> I'm going to show you who I am. <laughs> so you find that often, like you've been told something negative and you're like, no, that's not me. I'm going to prove that. otherwise. The exact opposite. Yeah. Right. But it's also about believing in our children, believing yes. in their capacities, their abilities. They're, you know, they're going to, they're going to do well. Lag that out of yeah, them. Yeah. Like Rabbi Sachs said, he said something you should live by, believe in others more than they believe in themselves. Oh, yes. 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 Yeah. You said it on a, on a, and some people have parents that are doing that for them. And, and some people have teachers that are doing that for them. And we don't know who has which support system. So we we have to be that support for as many people as we can. Yes. And don't underestimate your impact, your ability to impact even someone who's not related to you. Like even giving someone a single compliment, you never know if they're going to remember it like for the rest of their lives, you know, like it's really Words can be so impactful. Like take the yeah. time to compliment. It doesn't cost you anything. By the way, just thinking about, because we're talking about integration, words that leave, like you think they're just going to hang there, but they can really integrate into a person's psyche and into the way the person feels. So because, words, because they meditated on it. Yeah, they meditated <laughs> on it. Exactly. Right, right. <laughs> it was circling okay. and circling there. So we've all we've done full circle back to meditation. That's right. Um, That's right. Okay, so... So can you also share with us on the power of words um, when we're, while we're talking about that, what was the best practical advice you've received or a piece of advice that has stuck with you? So I think the best advice I've ever received is basically, um, I'll say it bluntly and then I'll explain it, get over yourself. Meaning a lot of times we get stuck in ourselves, whether it's in a bad mood or a situation the best advice was you're going through a hard time, pick up the phone and call someone else and ask them how they're doing. Transcending yourself. Because when we're stuck in ourselves, we we don't see past our own nose. And it limits us. And when we suddenly get out, you know, we schlep ourselves out of that mindset and start asking other people how they're doing, we could see things in a different light. It's kind of like we were saying earlier with our animal soul and our spiritual soul. It's taking whatever is holding us back, which is our animal soul, whatever we're stuck in and doing something positive with it, like doing something spiritual with that. Yeah. I remember even I once saw it so clearly in my son. My son came home from school in a very bad mood. Somebody said something to him and he was, he was like uptight and in a bad mood. And then somebody from Beaker Holm had asked if anyone had anyone that played music to go visit someone. And I took him in an Uber to... Um, what's it called? Kingsbrook hospital down there. And he was a little boy, maybe he was seven and he was playing on his keyboard for someone there. His face was glowing. I saw this huge, huge, huge transformation. Like he was in a bad mood and suddenly he's so happy to be playing music for this other woman. 
I didn't have to say anything. I'd have to schlep him out of his back mood. I didn't have to, I, it just, it happened automatically and naturally. And seeing it on him also reminded me about myself. Right. You know, the best thing we can do is get away from ourselves and into other people and asking, you know, and seeing how we could show up and be of service to them. And some, in some moments that's really hard, but we're going to keep those words in mind when we get there. Get over yourself. <laughs> it's great. I, I, it's yeah. counterintuitive, but it's it's really great. Yeah. Like it's not all about you. And you'll remember that when you, you know, look outside yourself. Right. That's and you're not going to forget about yourself. Like the right. stuff will all be there. Yeah. Like, don't worry. And there's I'm, so many hours in the day. You'll, you'll get right back to it. But for now, that's the best thing you can get. Also, you're least equipped to get yourself to a good place when you're in an angry place. Yeah. So even for that, like you can resolve, if you're dealing with something, you're not equipped to resolve it when you're in it. So you've got to step outside of it before you are able to be logical about what's the best, or at least a little more logical about what's the best way to get myself through this situation. Um, okay. So we love, I just add love, more, yeah. I remember, yeah, yeah. I remember I experienced this the most during COVID when it was hard and I wasn't feeling well and I lost a pregnancy and it was, and there was no cleaning help. And I, I remember like feeling so stuck in my own little COVID struggles and then asking friends how they were doing and hearing their challenges just took me out of myself. I didn't yeah. feel the pain as like, it just, I didn't feel it as strongly and I felt better. <laughs> yeah. So we, Rifka and I love quotes. I feel like, especially after this episode, like having like these short meditations, I think quotes also encapsulate so much. Um, and we were wondering if you have a quote or a takeaway that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, I do have a takeaway. I think there's a lot of discussion in the Tanya chapters, like back and forth, almost like this tension going back and forth, which much more important. Is it the act of the mitzvah? Is it doing the next right thing? Giving tzedakah, keeping Shabbos kosher, just do it. Or is it the kavana? Is it the intention? And Tanya has some chapters where it makes it sound like action is the most important thing. And there are some chapters where it's like, yeah, but if you don't put the intention in it, it's not going to soar up to heaven or whatnot. And I think that the, the takeaway is that this is really like a, a constant balance. You know, if I'm focused too much on day-to-day life, on getting my kids off to school and, and making food and ordering and cleaning, da, 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 and, and it becomes too mundane, I'm missing the spiritual, the emotional, the kavana. But at the same time, if I love meditating so much and, and, and learning that I don't actually even make the time to pray in the word, you know, in the morning, I don't say the words Shema Yisrael, I'm also out of balance. So my takeaway from Tanya is really this balance. The Hebrew words are ratzoi, the desire to just connect to God and be spiritual and shuv, which is returning with that energy be practical. Bottom line is do the mitzvah. What a balance. I think this brings it all together too, is that it can't just be something that is an intention, which is like a thought process. It has to be an action process also, a balance between the two. Life is a cycle of creating inspiration and then directing it towards action. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's it. Right. And there's, there is a Tanya bit that, that discusses it about channeling the passion and, and et cetera. Like just, you know, you, you want your soul to go for a run. Just don't forget to channel your passion. Like, right. It's and that would, constant balance. Right. And would you say in between the inspiration and the action comes the meditation? I would say the meditation helps create the inspiration. The meditation helps create the motivation, but we can't stay in this state. 
right? The meditation will help it come from your thoughts to your feelings, but then the next step is from your feelings to action. Um, and no, because you can be inspired, but if you don't meditate on it, it's hard to put it into action. I just thought maybe you could have mm. the inspiration, mm-hmm. then you meditate on it and that helps you put it into action. I see it. I see it both ways. I see it that way too, but that the thinking helps bring from a thought to a feeling and then it further helps you actually bring it down into the action. I could see that also actually. And you know, I think some people naturally gravitate maybe more to shove to doing mm-hmm. and some people naturally maybe gravitate towards Bratsoi to like, oh, be so inspired. And I think that we might have both at different times in our life. Yeah. And Tanya is really about saying that it's close to you to do both. Close to you to feel motivated and it's close to you to actually do what God wants and make a beautiful home for him. Yeah, it's like a dynamic. It's a dynamic process. It's like, you know, things moving all at once. And we have to learn how to balance them. Right. And our body does this internally all the time. This like right. equilibrium that we're after. Yeah. And, that, and, and that's what we're looking for here. You know, we want to be inspired, but channel it into an action, into taking a penny and putting it in the pushka, into, you know, benching, praying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was... Thank a you. Really great conversation. Okay. Yes. I hope it's a little bit more close to you to open the Tanya, to learn about what um, God wants from us and, and to really take our Judaism seriously. You know, our souls need it. Well, it's definitely closer to me now than it was before we started this conversation. I feel closer to you. <laughs>